Please take your Bible and turn with me to the book of John. We're going to begin with the 23rd verse of John chapter 2 and then continue in the book of John chapter 3. I'm reading from the New American Standard Bible and invite you to join me in the reading of the word from whatever Bible you have in your hand. The Gospel of John, chapter 2, verse 23. Now, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover during the feast, many believed in his name, observing his signs, which he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, was not entrusting himself to them, for he knew all men. And because he did not need anyone to testify concerning man, for he himself knew what was in man. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you have come from God as a teacher, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered and said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? He cannot enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born, can he? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not be amazed that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear the sound of it, but do not know where it comes from and where it is going. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus said to him, How can these things be? Jesus answered and said to him, Are you the teacher of Israel and do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know. And testify of what we have seen, and you do not accept our testimony. If I told you earthly things and you do not believe, how will you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven, but he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. The second petition of what is commonly called the Lord's Prayer says, Your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. That would have been revolutionary in its impact upon the thinking of a man like Nicodemus. Nicodemus is described in this passage by Jesus himself as being the teacher of Israel. And being such a teacher, he would have expected the kingdom of God to come, but at the end of the age, not in this life. You may remember when Jesus was approached by some Pharisees, they were asking him about the nature of the kingdom of God. And Jesus simply said, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. It's here now. Perhaps you remember when Jesus found himself before Pilate, the representative of Rome, who held his fate, it seemed at least, in his hand. And he was asking him about his kingship. And Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this world. This reminds me of a dispute that arose, interestingly and really shockingly, right after Jesus had instituted the Lord's Supper at Passover. 
And his apostles began to argue as to who was the greatest. And Jesus interrupted their argument. And he said, the kings of the Gentiles lord it over you. And you call them your benefactors. But let it not be with you. Because the leader among you is to be the servant of all. Quite a different kingdom, isn't it? as compared to the kingdom or kingdoms of this world. This is an incredible kingdom. And this is a kingdom which Jesus says cannot be seen and cannot be entered into unless one is born again. And the kingdom of God, simply put, is the reign or rule of God understood, but also put into practice. And grace prevails in this kingdom, as we're going to see. It's not a kingdom that is based upon the righteousness of man, but it is a kingdom that is based upon the undeserved favor of God. Allow me an illustration of God's grace as it came to bear in the life of a man by the name of William Wilberforce. Some of you know the name Wilberforce. Wilberforce Life has been put into movies. One is Amazing Grace. Very appropriate to describe this man. His father died when he was still a boy. His mother sent him to be with his uncle and aunt, William, and his wife in London. So happened that they were devout followers of Jesus. They weren't just nominally Christian. They were Christians all the way. And so they taught him. This alarmed William Wilberforce's mother so much so when she heard the way he was speaking about Jesus and about what it means to be a follower of Christ when they would reunite for acquaintance and visit, that she snatched him out of their house and sent him to boarding school for the next six years, during which time he seemed to have lost touch with this truth of the necessity of being born again to enter the kingdom of God. He went to Cambridge He had become rich by this time because his grandfather, who died, left him a handsome sum of money as an inheritance. And when he got to Cambridge, he brought his charm and his wit with him. He was very bright, but he was very adequate, exceptional, actually, with people. And he had a great way with people. He charmed his way all the way through Cambridge. When he graduated... He and a friend whom he had met there, William Pitt the Younger, as he's called. His father had been prime minister. And this young Pitt was conversing with his friend. He said, we need to go for the parliament. And so William Wilberforce took that in stride. Remember, he was a wealthy young man in his early 20s. At the age of 24, he ran for parliament. And he spent the handsome sum at that time, 8,000 to 9,000 pounds to, in a sense, by an election. He was elected. And he and Pitt, who also was elected, they became the talk of the town in London. They hung out with the rich and famous. They went to the men's clubs where they drank and gambled and chatted the evenings away. On an assignment that he received to go to Ireland as a member of Parliament, he sought a traveling companion. And he couldn't find anyone to whom he was very close, but he had an acquaintance by the name of Isaac Milner. Milner, too, a graduate of Cambridge, 
was a very astute mathematician and scientist who happened to be a clergyman in the Church of England and who was, by the way, someone who had been born again. As they sat in the coach and rode throughout the countryside of Ireland, there were many opportunities to discuss things. And Wilberforce, being a very inquisitive individual, wanting to know, listened carefully to the things which his traveling companion, this born-again Anglican minister who was superior in his understanding of math and science, would talk, they would talk about matters of math and science. And as the Lord would have it, the conversation would move its way toward things spiritual. They began to read a work by one of the great Puritans by the name of Dodd. And they also began to open the Greek New Testament. Imagine this, two men, one a clergyman, of course, but the other a layman in the sense of Wilberforce, who could read Greek. And they would read the Greek New Testament and discuss the contents of the Testament. And an awakening came into Wilberforce's life. He was radically transformed by God's Spirit. He entered into the kingdom of God. Now, do you remember, I don't suppose you would, I just said it in passing, what I mentioned about what the kingdom of God is? It's not a regional thing. It is a heart thing. It's the heart or the hearts of people who are ruled by God and His rules for His kingdom. And they also are people who obey those rules. They don't just have them in their heads. They obey those rules. And the effect is there's change in the world in which those people live. Jesus says, as we've seen, my kingdom is not of this world. Jesus also says to us who know Christ, who have been born again, that we are the salt of the earth and we are the light of the world. You know probably that there was no way to preserve meat, particularly in Jesus' day, except by the use of salt. It preserved the meat. But it also gave it a good taste. I cannot imagine not having salt. I just keep praying that I won't get high blood pressure and the doctor will say, you're off the salt. I can't imagine. I almost say I'd rather die, but I'm not going to say that. I'm sure if I find myself in that situation, it'll be a little different in that moment. But nevertheless, salt is primarily to preserve that which it comes in contact with. You are the light of the world, Jesus says. Let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. So what does light do? Well, light dispels darkness. And we saw in the introduction of this great gospel that the Word was the light. In Him was the light of the world. He brightens the darkness. He not only dispels the darkness, when the darkness tries to overcome the light, the light is dispelled. And we who know Christ have the light living in us and His light can actually shine through us. We are to be salt and light. Let's be very clear. I think you understand where I'm headed with this. People who are born again make a difference in the world in which they live. Can you imagine a world without believers, followers of Jesus in it? Can you imagine what that would be like? I was having a conversation yesterday with two men who are 
veterans of the Middle Eastern wars that have been waging for so long. One man is recently separated from the army. The other man will be retiring as an officer in July. And they were very candid in conversation with me and about four other men in our church about the difficulties that they still have. They had been talking about them as they came. They were our guests in our meeting yesterday. They had come together from Crosstown and they came here to our facility as we met for Bible study. And they were talking about how they are still haunted in many ways regarding the things that they participated in in war. And one of our men, who himself was a Vietnam veteran, was consoling them, not to say that it's right to murder people, but in the service of mankind and more particularly in the service of the Lord. The Bible says this, quite frankly, in the book of Romans 13, people who are charged with taking up the sword are under the institution that God has established to protect people. And the good news is, as we discuss this further, another man around the table made the comment that think what those situations in which you found yourself would have been like were it not for people like you who would have kept greater atrocities from occurring. Very interesting, isn't it? Well, William Wilberforce, let's get back to William. After he came to Christ, he consulted John Newton. You know who John Newton is? You know what amazing grace, the great hymn, he wrote that great hymn. He was also the leading evangelical Anglican priest in Great Britain. He was a spokesman par excellence for the gospel of Jesus Christ, the necessity of being born again to see and enter the kingdom of God. And as he consulted him and also his political ally, William Pitt, who was not a follower of Christ, he was a member of the Church of England, but not a follower of Christ. The two of those men came together and they encouraged Wilberforce not to go into the clergy. He was considering becoming a clergyman. They said, your influence can be best wielded in Parliament. And so he agreed to do that. And he committed himself to do two things. He committed himself in his career, which was a much storied career as a parliamentarian, to one, suppress the slave trade, number two, to the reformation of manners, which was a way of saying morality in Great Britain. I don't go into great detail beyond this, except to say that in both cases he was used and he persisted. He did not give up until slavery was abolished from the British Empire. What a great thing. He was used as a follower of Christ to change the climate of the world. This is amazing. And what Christ calls us to do is to enter the kingdom of God. But we can only enter it if we see it and if we know that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, and we are born again. And as far as the morality of Great Britain is concerned, through his writings, through his influence as a public figure, the morale, in the best sense of the word, improved too. Well, let's talk about this matter of being born again. What does it really mean? Born again? That suggests born a second time, doesn't it? And there is a sense in which that is appropriate, but it's not the primary sense. The reason we know this is the word again translates a word which means from above. 
That's the way it's used. For instance, in this same chapter that we're reading, look at verse 31. He who comes from above is above all. Speaking of Jesus, he who comes from above is above all. If we were to go to John chapter 19, verse 11, and eavesdrop on the conversation that Pilate and Jesus were having about the authority that Pilate had over Jesus. Pilate was trying to intimidate him. Don't you know I have authority to kill you, in effect, is what he said? And then Jesus said, you would have no authority over me if you had not been given it from above. Here again, it's the same word is translated again in association with being born. So being born again is being born from above. Keep that in mind as we continue our study this morning. Well, the must of being born again, it is a must that you be born again if you are going to enter the kingdom of God. To see it and to enter into it. Look at verse 7 of chapter 3. Jesus says, Do not be amazed that I said to you, and that's you singular, by the way, in the original language. We can't tell by looking at it in English. Do not be amazed that I said to you, Nicodemus, you, and here he changes the number of this pronoun from a singular to a plural. So let me read it again. Do not be amazed that I said to you, Nicodemus, y'all must be born again. Every one of you must be born again. This is not something that's unique to Nicodemus. It's something that is necessary for all of us. We must be born again. The new birth is a must for all people. It's a must for those who are religious. Nicodemus was such a person. Look at verse 1. Now, there was a man of the Pharisees. Stop right there. The Pharisees were the separated ones. Remember that they were lay people. There were 6,000 only out of a population of 1.5 million people in Israel at the time. These people wielded great influence. They were sticklers for the law. Remember the Apostle Paul said, I was a Pharisee of Pharisees. They kept the law religiously and meticulously. And here's why. They believed that it was only through a strict keeping of the law of God that a person could get into heaven. Let me give you a couple of examples of this. Not only did they adhere to the clear teaching of what we call the Old Testament. But they also adhered to those things which had been written by the rabbis for generations as it related to how to actually keep the Sabbath holy as example. Let me give you a couple of examples of this. It was said among the rabbis, and Nicodemus would have known this, and Nicodemus would have practiced this. If you have a sore throat, and on the Sabbath... You take vinegar for it. You can only swallow it. You cannot gargle it. Because to gargle would constitute work. Now, we think that's rather foolish. But Nicodemus took that seriously, as did all Pharisees. Also, when a person would walk a journey, and a person could only walk one mile on the Sabbath, according to the traditions that had been elevated in many ways above the Word of God itself. Jesus had a beef with the Pharisees on many levels. But one of them had to do with this whole matter of Sabbath keeping. He said, 
to them on many occasions. You have raised your traditions of the elders above the Word of God. So if you could only walk one mile on the Sabbath, what the Pharisees and others who wanted to adhere to the written law is over against the scriptural law, this is what they would do. On the day before a journey, if they were going more than one mile, what they would do, they would go and take some of their clothing and deposit it on the day before the journey so that on the Sabbath, if they wanted to go up to two miles, what they would do, they could come to that point Take the clothes that they had on off and put those clothes on. And that place becomes their place of dwelling because they had possessions there and they could complete the trip. That's wild, isn't it? And then what they would do, their shoes, we would call them sandals, had soles on them which were secured to the top of the sandal or the shoe with nails. And they would make sure that the weight of the nails in the bottom of their sandals did not exceed the legal limit as far as their law was concerned for walking because they would be working by carrying too much weight on the Sabbath. This is Nicodemus. Nicodemus was a religious man. To the hilt, he was a religious man. He believed all the doctrines. He was doctrinally sound. But he made the grave error of externalizing his religion. Are you a religious person? Are you a person who prides yourself in a careful keeping of the law of God? Nothing wrong with the law. Jesus has not come to destroy the law of the prophets, but to fulfill them. He did for us what we could never do for ourselves. This is part of the reason he came. He could not secure our salvation, but... Are you a religious person? John Wesley, who is considered the father of Methodism, he was a man who was baptized, confirmed, and ordained as an Anglican priest. Yet he said he had this awful unrest in his soul. In an effort to show God how committed he was, he went across the Atlantic Ocean, braved hurricane force winds to take the gospel message to what we now know as Georgia. He went there and he was there and he still found no final fulfillment in being a missionary, taking the gospel to people in that colony of Georgia. He came home and he continued to fast. He had done that throughout his Days of being an ordained minister and even as a student at his university. He fasted, he prayed, he preached, and he still was empty. He said about himself, I was an almost Christian. Now, there's no such thing as an almost Christian. You either are all the way or you're not. You have to be born again to be such a Christian. And he found himself one evening... At a residence, a small group of people, the person in charge of the meeting opened the preface to the book of Romans as a commentary written by Martin Luther, the great reformer. And all the man did was read Luther's comments about the gospel. And as a result, he heard the gospel for the first time. He was born again. He had not seen the kingdom of God. Why? He had yet to be born again. You must be born again. Look, if you're depending upon your religion, being baptized, taking communion, giving money, just fill in the blank. If you're 
depending on your religious acts to get you into the kingdom of heaven, you are barking up the wrong tree. You will never get there if that is the case. Nicodemus was a religious man. He was a man of the Pharisees. He was also, according to verse 1, a ruler of the Jews. This meant that he was a powerful man. Powerful people must be born again. He was one of 70 whose declarations ruled all the Jewish people, not simply in Palestine, but all over the world. Wherever a synagogue could be found in the known world, those people had to abide by the rulings of this group of 70 known as the Sanhedrin, Nicodemus being one of them, hundreds and sometimes thousands of miles away. A ruler of the Jews. People who are powerful can't depend upon their power. And I'm talking about religiously powerful, okay? I'm not talking about people who are elected to office or people who, by virtue of their descent, become kings of nations. People who overthrow governments with coup after coup after coup. Not, I'm not talking about those people. I'm talking about people who are religious in nature. Your religion won't get you into heaven. And your position of power will not get you into heaven. Let's go back to our text and see what it says about Nicodemus. In addition to this, this man came to Jesus by night. And let's stop there for a moment. Why did he come by night? Well, there's been a lot of speculation over the centuries by New Testament interpreters as to why he came by night. One suggestion, and this probably has quite a bit of merit, if not more merit than the other suggestions, is he came by night because he was afraid. If we were to go to the 12th chapter of this great gospel and begin at verse 42, I believe it is, we'll read about how several of the rulers of the Jews, remember Nicodemus was one, believed in Jesus, but they were afraid to confess Jesus publicly because they were afraid they'd be kicked out of the synagogue. We have no idea the kind of pressure that would be placed on a man like Nicodemus and the fear that would come into his heart at the suggestion that he would be excommunicated from his people. But that, quite frankly, would have been something that I believe would have been on the mind of Nicodemus. He was afraid to confess Christ. If he made this commitment, could he keep it? And this becomes applicable to your life and my life. I've seen a lot of men over the course of my life pray to receive Christ in, in more than one case in debating whether to receive Christ and be born again. In more than one instance, what I have witnessed is a fear in grown men a fear of what other people will think about them in their peer group if they give their lives to Christ. And here's another way the fear manifested itself. It manifested itself as well when people would say, and I really admire this. I didn't admire the other viewpoint, but this I do admire. They were concerned that they would not be able to keep the commitment which they made once they came to Christ. I want to share something which was written by a man named William Temple. Uh, Temple was a bishop in the Church of England, a great man of God in his own right, a man who was born again. Listen to what he says in answer to this question of being afraid of not being able to live up to the standard that is set for us 
as followers of Christ. Thank you, Drew. I thought I had my days mixed up. I thought this was the 4th of July or something, you know. Listen to what William Temple wrote. It is no good giving me a play like Hamlet or King Lear and telling me to write a play like that. Shakespeare could do it. I can't. And it is no good showing me a life like the life of Jesus and telling me to live a life like that. Jesus could do it. I can't. But if the genius of Shakespeare could come and live in me, then I could write plays like that. And if the Spirit of Jesus could come and live in me, I could have a life like that. That's the key. This is the Christian life. It's about being born again. And what happens according to what John teaches in 1 John chapter 3, verse 8, the seed of God comes to live in us when we're born again, which refers to none other than Jesus Christ. By His Spirit, He comes to live in us. And He lives the life through us. So if you're fearful, thinking that you could not in any way or form or fashion live up to the obligations of what it means to follow Christ, think again. Because the presence of Christ will be in you. Paul said, I am crucified with Christ Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but Christ lives in me. Therein lies the answer to our fears. Nicodemus learned this, we know. He shows up a couple more times in the book of John, and we'll look forward to seeing what has happened to him when we get there. He says in the middle of verse 2 of chapter 3, Rabbi... We know that you have come from God as a teacher, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Now, he was very respectful. He says a little later in the text, we've read it, he says, with puzzlement, he says, Can a man enter into his mother's womb a second time and be born? How can he be born again when he is old? This is a puzzle, a mystery to him. And quite honestly, this whole matter of being born again has a mysterious element to it. But just because there's mystery does not mean that it's not reality. And this man was a man who was talking to a man maybe half his age. And he himself was a rabbi. Nicodemus was. After all, he's called the teacher of Israel. Not just a teacher but the teacher of Israel by Jesus. And he, he talks to this young man, 30-ish, and he may be 60-ish, an elder, a man of power, a religious man. And he's very respectful in his remarks to Jesus. Look, you can be a nice person. You, actually, there are a lot of people who don't know Christ who are nicer than those of us who do. Really. Sad to say. But the reality is, you can be a nice person and your courtesy, your respectfulness is not going to get you into heaven. You have to be born again to see and enter the kingdom of God. When Christ comes into a person's life, He makes that person totally new. John Calvin wrote this about being born again. 
born again is not an amendment, but the renewal of the entire nature of an individual. It's not just fixing someone up. It's raising someone from the dead. That's why I asked Mike to read from Ezekiel chapter 37, the valley of dry bones. And God speaks to the dry bones. And what happens? Those bones come to life. And they're in a grave. What are graves for? They're for the dead. And the voice of God speaks. And it's the Spirit of God who raises them from the dead spiritually. The Bible is precise in its assessment of us that when we were born the first time, we were born dead. Dead on arrival. Each one of us was. As for you, you were dead in your trespasses and sin. But when Christ comes into our lives, the Bible says, therefore, if any person is in Christ, that person is a new creation. Not just someone who's been cleaned up, fixed up, but someone who is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. A gypsy wrote this about her father. No scientist is as sure of the working of any law. No physician is as sure of any medicine. No mathematician is as sure of any axiom as I am that Jesus Christ came into my gypsy tent and converted my rough, swearing, drinking, pilfering gypsy father into a clean Tender, honorable, strong, beautiful Christian man. He was born again. His nature, which was completely depraved, was gone. And he received the person of Christ. We who know Christ, Romans 6 is very clear. We have a new nature. Not dual natures, a new nature. We have the nature of God indwelling us. So we cannot depend on our religious dealings. We cannot depend on our position in the church or our power in any setting. We cannot depend on the, pa- the fact that we are respectful to other people. And I've said this twice already. It's worth saying again. If you look at verse 10, Jesus answered and said to him, Are you the teacher of Israel? You do not understand these things? Jesus was incredulous, really. That Nicodemus, who was the teacher of Israel, didn't understand this whole teaching of being born again. Didn't he know Ezekiel 37? Of course he did. But he had not been born of the Spirit. And until we have our eyes opened by the Spirit of God, until we are born again, we don't understand the Bible. Remember I mentioned William Pitt as an associate of William Wilberforce? William Pitt became, at the age of 24 one of the youngest, if not the youngest, of prime ministers in the history of Great Britain. He was outstanding. Of course, Wilberforce, after coming to faith in Jesus, having been born again, wanted to introduce his best buddy to Christ. So he took him to a private meeting. He knew that Pitt would not want to go to a big grouping of people where the gospel was preached. And a friend of both of theirs had arranged for a great teacher-preacher of the gospel to meet in his home with an audience of maybe two dozen or three dozen people. And as Wilberforce reported this event, he said, I had never heard the gospel more clearly explained that evening. I could not wait until P. 
Pitt and I got into our coach and we were on our way back to our place of residence, I could not wait to ask him, what did you think? And then the moment came as they got into the coach and Wilberforce asked him, what did you think? And his response was, I didn't understand a thing the man said. This is a man who's a world leader. This is a man who is a scholar. He did not understand. Why did he not understand? Because he was blind. He was dead spiritually. And the Spirit of God had not brought it to his attention. Do you understand that Jesus Christ, by the Holy Spirit, has to open your eyes, the eyes of your spirit, your dead spirit, or mine, in order that we may see? The Christian life... is a life that's based on fact, the resurrection of Christ. The Christian faith is of all possibilities, even if it were not true, and it's definitely true because of the resurrection of Christ, but if it were not true, it's the most rational of all religions. But it has an element beyond the rational. It is a revelational faith we have. It has to be shown to us. Jesus in Matthew 11 Verse 25 and following, I'm going to paraphrase it in the interest of time, but this is what he says. He says to the Father, Father, I thank you that you have concealed these things from the wise and intelligent, but revealed them to babes. He was not talking just about children. He was talking about people who were able to innocently become like a child and say, Lord, I see it. Thank you for showing me. I humble myself before you, Lord, and I ask you. To show it to me. Jesus actually said that only those to whom Jesus Himself reveals Himself, only those people are those who are born again. So here we see this great scholar. You may be a scholar. Nothing wrong with scholarship. We're to love the Lord our God with all of our minds. Don't put your mind on the shelf if you're a follower of Christ. Those who know Christ are those who want to know Him and love Him with their minds as well, born-again people. But just having a scholarly background that's something to be proud of doesn't cut it with God. One more thing, and this is more speculative than the others, as to why Nicodemus need to be born again. And we need to be born again. Religious, Nicodemus was. Powerful, Nicodemus was. He was courteous, respectful. He was that. He was a man who was fearful. Underneath, he was afraid. But he also probably felt like he was washed up. Perhaps he came to Jesus because he was seeing some younger young men come in to the circle of leadership. And instead of people coming to him, the teacher of Israel, they were probably coming to these young guys because they had newfangled ideas about the law. They were bright, maybe more sharp than he had become over time. So you may feel like you're washed up in your life. You've made a mess of your life. There's no way that what you've done with your life to the point of deteriorating your life, destroying your life, that you could be born again. Look. Being born again is for those who are washed up. Some of us don't know we're washed up, but we are already without Christ. Why must I be born again, you might ask. You might say, I pay my bills, am good to others, am a good citizen, am a good parent. I didn't ask to be born in the first time. 
first place, rather, I've been baptized. To ask this question or these questions is to admit the need. I is central in every one of those statements. And there has to be a transformation in your life that you cannot effect on your own. You can't make yourself transformed. It has to happen to you. The transformation is from being a self-centered person. The kingdom of God is not about self-centeredness. The kingdom of God is about God-centeredness. It's about Christ-centeredness. It's transitioning from being about you to being about Him and therefore being about other people who need Him. The new birth is a miracle of miracles. Two things. We've seen them already. The miracle of being born of the Spirit as well as being born again. In order to be born again, we must be born of the Spirit. Let's look at verse 4. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? He cannot enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born, can he? Puzzled, isn't he? Mystified by all this. Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. Time will not permit to go into great detail here. This is what I believe. When we read the next verse, look at verse 6. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. That which is born of the Spirit is spirit. What's he talking about? He's talking about two births, isn't he? In verse 6, a physical birth, flesh of flesh. A spiritual birth, spirit of spirit. So when he says in verse 5, Unless one is born of water, I think that has to do with the first birth, your physical birth, when your mother's water broke and you made the passage down her birth canal and you were born the first time. And, of course, the other birth is the spiritual birth. We didn't have anything to do with the first one. We don't have anything to do with the second one. The first one is sometimes and rightly so called natural, but there's a certain supernaturality to that, isn't there? Certainly there is. Do not be amazed, Jesus says in verse 7, that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear the sound of it, but do not know where it comes from and where it is going. So everyone who is born of the Spirit. I can't understand the wind. We have some meteorologists here who understand it for sure. I don't understand the wind. I know I can't control it, but I sure see the effects of it. I can... See it in trees when I'm driving down the road. This time of year especially, they're just swaying back and forth. I can see the effects of it. When I was a boy, I lived through two tornadoes in West Tennessee. And the effects were unbelievable. The power of those winds unleashed and destroyed. The effect was incredible. I cannot control the Holy Spirit, nor can you. We certainly can see his effects in lives which are changed, including our own. We've been born again if we know Christ. We have been made new people. Look at 9. Nicodemus said to him, how can these things be? His mystification continues. Jesus answered said to him, are you the teacher of Israel and do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and testify of what we have seen. And you do not accept our testimony. Who is joining Jesus in testifying? If we looked at John fifteen twenty six, we would find out Jesus has a partner in this testifying. It's none other than the Holy Spirit Himself. Jesus God, Holy Spirit God, a formidable force. They testify about the Lord Jesus. If you and I understand this 
at all. Anything about this makes sense to us, this matter of being born again. It's the work of the Holy Spirit and Jesus together testify. And here is the problem. He says to Nicodemus, you have not accepted our testimony. You know, Jesus has testified to us today, even though it's been almost 2,000 years since this interview that Jesus had with the man Nicodemus. Does all this talk about new birth, being born again, seem like so much mumbo-jumbo, pie in the sky to you? Well, if so, you aren't born again. You can't see it. Doesn't make sense to you. The question is, do you see it? We must see in order to enter the kingdom of God. But we are blind before we do. And the Lord Jesus calls us to Himself. Perhaps He's calling some of you today. Maybe you thought you were a Christian. And you've considered what has been taught today. And you believe, well, I'm not. What can I do? Well, you can do nothing to save yourself except to humble yourself before the Lord and say, Lord, I want to be born again. Please, Lord, take me. Teach me. Rule me. I want to be a part of your kingdom. I'm coming to you, not on my terms, but I'm coming to you on your terms to be committed to you lock, stock, and barrel. And to trust You to give me the power to live this life, Lord. Would You bow Your head? Would that be Your prayer today? To receive Christ and so be born again? He is the life. He is the way to the Father. There's no other way. Lord, work in the hearts of those present Draw them to Yourself. Give them new life. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.